there are definitely, I mean, you and I are definitely in agreement that there are people in our country that have no business having guns. Correct. Absolutely. There's, I know some people who they just shouldn't have them. They're not, they're not mentally capable of dealing with it, no matter how old they really are. They're just not mentally capable of dealing with the responsibility of being a gun owner. You have these things, and they can be used for all kinds of purposes, some good, some bad, but just the individuals who own these farms are responsible for them and responsible for what happens to them. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Well, we're talking about the active shooter incident at Marjorie Stoneman High School in the city of Parkland this last week. Just a horrific occasion. And with me today, Larry Nichols, law enforcement, firearms, and tactical expert. And uh, Larry, I want to take you right into the scene. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, just short of two o'clock, the 19-year-old white male shooter, uh, who was a former student of the high school, who had actually been expelled uh, the previous year for fighting and, and disruptive behavior, told not to come back to the school and never to bring a backpack with him when he did. So, you know, the school had some idea of what could be placed in that backpack. He gets in an Uber. He's got a black duffel bag and a backpack with him. Inside the black duffel is an AR-15-223 semi-automatic rifle, numerous fully loaded magazines of 223 ammunition, both in the duffel and in the backpack. He gets in an Uber. He gets the Uber driver to drive him to the school. And at 2.16 in the afternoon on a very sunny day, a beautiful day in Parkland, Florida, he manages to enter the school grounds, which is a very large campus. Uh, Marjorie Stoneman, I think, has about 3,000 students, uh, numerous buildings on campus. And he ends up going into the one, into one of the main buildings and, as to his plan, pulls the firearm uh, out of the duffel bag. He's got his magazines with him and pulls the fire alarm to release the kids from the school uh, classrooms that they were in. Then, as the kids come out into the hallway in an orderly fashion, he unleashes that AR-15 and starts mowing these kids down in the fatal funnel of fire that he's created. One of the female teachers hears the gunfire, comes outside, sees there's an active shooter in progress, and starts screaming at the kids and literally grabbing them and throwing them back into one of the classrooms so that they can barricade in place. Our 19-year-old shooter goes to the ninth grade classroom. These are brand new kids, freshman kids, and blows out the window in the school 
classroom door and starts indiscriminately shooting through the classrooms, wounding and killing a couple of kids, and then remaining in the hallway to continue to mow down the panic-stricken kids that were there. Well, I will tell you that as you and I know, being active shooter uh, response instructors, the average active shooting incident takes place in under five minutes. It took him, from the moment he got into the school ground and started shooting, it took him, according to what we can see on CCTV camera and get our timestamps in, it took him about three minutes to complete the act of the shooting. Then, strategically, and part of his plan, I'm sure, he drops his AR-15, takes off his body armor, and extracts among the panic-driven uh, kids and manages to totally escape the campus before the two armed officers, I think they might have been school resource officers that were in a different part of the campus, we don't know exactly where they were, but managed to get to the location to try to locate and engage the active shooter, who's already gone. He leaves the campus on foot and uh, goes to a nearby subway a sandwich store where he purchases a drink, stays there for a while while law enforcement is responding to the scene, then changes his location and goes to a McDonald's and stays there for a while. And when he thinks the coast is clear, then he starts walking home and he's got a very distinctive clothing that he's wearing. He's got a black hat, he's got a maroon shirt, and he's got dark pants. Now, he's ditched the duffel bag. Remember, he's unarmed now, but he gets spotted by a responding officer who's got a partial description who even questioned whether this was the right kid because the guy is just moseying down the street. He's not panicking at all. He's got a nice gait, but the officer was smart enough to question himself and take this guy out on gunpoint, get him felony proned, and we've got some cell phone video of the arrest, and takes him into custody without incident. Let's talk about this thing and, and, and try to forensically break it down, Larry. What do you think about that plan? Well, it planned and executed a highly a well-planned execution of an ambush that included his escape without being noticed. And Larry, you know, they, they talk about different types of ambushes in the military. Can you take us through those? Well, there's basically two. There's what is really kind of a spontaneous ambush, and it happens in law enforcement as well as in, in the military. Such as a law enforcement officer is in a dry food line at some fast food, food uh, to get his lunch or dinner, and some guy takes the opportunity to walk up to him and shoot him. Exactly. It's an ambush, but it was, it's a spontaneous ambush, and it wasn't planned. This guy planned, this this kid planned a, he worked at this for some time to make this plan and make, and make it work. Not only did his plan work, he had it planned down to the point when he pulled that fire alarm that he brought the targets, his students, the wings that he wanted to shoot, he brought them to him. He didn't have to go to them at all. And that's actually quite different than any of the other active shooter incidents, and we've had 25 since the Columbine Colorado High School Massacre back in 1999. This is the first active shooting at a school that I can recall where the killer, who had actually been a student at that school, 
had been expelled from that school, knew how they trained for fire drills, and knew about active shooting uh, because they'd had a drill on that, and he knew about barricading in place, and he knew how to thwart that. And he used all that information he gleaned from the teachers and everybody else. Uh, and being a student at that school, he knew how the school operated. He knew he was going to have fire drills, and every time there was a fire drill, everybody just moses out of the hall. Well, he exactly knew what was going to happen. And that created, as we discussed, that fatal funnel of fire. Yeah. Can you just imagine those panic-driven kids of getting mowed down, falling over each other, experiencing hypervigilance, panic, all of those things that, that we're going to talk about in our first segment. And, uh, and there's, there's almost no escape for them. No. One thing that always got my curiosity up about schools is that they always have fire drills. And it's required by law to have fire drills to protect students from fire. How many students have ever been injured or killed in a school from a fire? None. But they continue with the fire drills. And this kid took that training and used it against them. You know, isn't that interesting? And again, because you and I, you know, teach active shooters at, at you know, www.responsetoactiveshooter.com. And uh, with our national footprint, uh, we are out there teaching corporate America. We're teaching schools and things. But isn't it interesting, and we'll talk about this probably towards the later part of the show, but exactly like you said, more kids are getting killed in active shooter events than by fires, which is zero, right. and yet they do fire drills far more often than they do active shooting drills. As a matter of fact, you and I both know the vast majority of schools in the United States don't do any active shooter training. None at all. And so what is the logical consequence of that? The panic, the chaos, uh, kids falling all over themselves and becoming victims. The shooters use the panic and all the chaos and all the adrenaline that is going to be pumping into everybody else and using it against them. Exactly. And He's not under any kind of big adrenaline dump right now. You know, he doesn't have tunnel vision. He doesn't have auditory shutdown. He's, he's moving and thinking the whole time. And you know what, let's talk about some of these human factor issues that we're bringing up. Larry, let's just talk about tunnel vision, okay? Why don't you start to explain tunnel vision and I'll give it a little bit more forensic response. Tunnel vision, if you really want to see what it looks like yourself, is you take a uh, paper towel roll and you look through the roll. You look through the hole in the roll and whatever you that you're looking at through that hole is all you see under tunnel vision. You have no peripheral vision. It's gone. All you see is this one dimension, and that's it. And you know, normally for our listeners, uh, peripheral vision, we should be able to see at least movement, discern movement to our right and our left, uh, out to about 180 degrees. So, you know, Larry, you're talking about that, you know, that toilet paper roll, which I think is a great analogy. And look at all of that vision that is lost. As a matter of fact, tunnel vision, which is just, you know, the fluids in our eyes pushing against our cornea, which is our lens of our eye, uh, it's reduced from 180 degrees down to 10 degrees off the center. So really, that's all you really see. And, and some people get panic blindness where they can't even see, period. Yeah, they, they 
Yeah, tunnel vision is a, is a scary thing. Everybody gets it, and but and there's there's easy ways to break up tunnel vision, but that's never talked to anybody outside probably law, some law enforcement individuals. Right. And uh, but everybody gets tunnel vision, but you got to know how to break it up. And that really changes the perception of what yeah, people are going to see, right? Because not only are you distracted, and I what I found remarkable because we're dealing with the millennium generation is we're talking about kids that are social media fluent and they've got cell phones, they've got tablets, it's all electronic. There's very little intercommunication with these kids. And so I, in listening to some of these kids that were being interviewed uh, by the media, they were talking about, well, I'm in this hallway and I'm running and I'm, I'm trying to text my folks and I'm trying to call my folks. I'm saying, just throw the damn phone down, son, yeah. and just save your life for God's sake. Cell phone's not going to save you. Exactly. And and let's talk about, you know, you mentioned uh, another thing that happens with regards to the human body, and that's this auditory shutdown. Can you sort of explain that? Well, auditory shutdown in an extremely high-stress situation is, and I've, I've actually involved, been involved in it. I've seen it happen. This has been, it's happened to me. And you get a really huge adrenaline dump in it that you would actually receive in, when you're fighting for your own life. Then you can have somebody actually standing beside you screaming at you, and you will not hear them. You know, the body has a way of protecting itself. And one of those ways under high, high adrenaline dump is to shut down the auditory. You don't hear anything. I mean, I've used a lot of automatic weapons in the military and different kinds of deployments, and I don't remember hearing any of them. And you know, you're, you're exactly right. Back in 1983, when I was a police officer, uh, I, I was uh, chasing a bad guy, and uh, it, it, I got into an officer-involved shooting. And at the time, uh, we were using wheel guns, which is a, you know, like a, a revolver, a six-shooter. And I had a Model 66 stainless Smith & Wesson uh, revolver. So I think anybody that's ever fired a Magnum revolver knows that it's pretty darn loud. And uh, I fired one round. I only fired one round. I never heard the round go off. But it was uh, kind of a weird thing that I experienced because I had a hand pack. I had a walkie-talkie on my, my belt. And I could hear officers that were trying to follow the pursuit. And they were screaming, shots fired, shots fired. Yeah. And I had a serendipitous moment at the time. And I said to myself, even though I'm the guy that fired the gun, yeah. I wonder who fired their gun. <laughs> right? And so... That was an excellent, you and I have uh, both worn the, the same t-shirt with regards to deadly force, and we know that's one of the things that have happened. Let me talk about uh, some another couple of the vision aspects. I, I know in, in my officer-involved shooting, I only see it in black and white when I relive it. Yeah, there's, you don't see things like that in color ever again. I mean, it's always black and white. And again, that, that's something to do with the psyche of the body protecting itself. Exactly. And, and, you know, for our listeners, we have something uh, in our vision referred to as rods and cones. Yeah. And when we get totally jacked up and stressed out, as you mentioned it, uh, the adrenaline dump, we lose, our, we lose our rods and cones. So just look at the mess we've created for ourselves where we've got the tunnel vision. We've got the problem with our hearing where we can't hear uh, anything or greatly diminished. And now we can't even see in black and white. And then we have something called temporal distortions, which is timing problems. Larry, why don't you talk about that? Uh, that's that is, that's where a lot of people are involved in these kind of things, and I've interviewed and, and investigated several law enforcement shootings, 
and they all this time distortion is they tell you it all happened in slow motion you know and it really didn't happen in slow motion it was going you know full tilt and they they say it took several minutes when it took several seconds because it seemed like several minutes because everything just drags out because it's really in slow motion and it really is and but the action's not it's the brain is seeing it in slow motion it's that subconscious mind and isn't the it subconscious mind is going warp speed and what's left of the conscious mind after the adrenaline up is going like a turtle. You know, and that, it can't keep up. So it sounds like and looks like slow motion. You know, that, that's exactly right because that's exactly what's happened to me. When I go back and relive that officer involved shootings and other things that I've been involved in in my career, um, uh, in the most stressful ones, I can only do it real slow. And I swear to God, you can almost see that bullet coming out of the oh, muzzle yeah. of that gun. And, of course, we know that that oh, never happened. Seems like it does. Yeah. I, 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 I can see the bullet. You know, some of the things that have come out uh, in, in, the, in the forensic investigation of this shooting are now we are finding that those things never occurred. Let me give you a couple examples of some of the things that we have heard in the first couple of days uh, when the interviews have been going on with these kids, and that is that the shooter had a gas mask, the shooter had smoke bombs, the, the shooter deployed smoke bombs, there was smoke uh, in the hallway and everything, and now we know in reviewing the CCTV video, the closed circuit TV video, that that never happened. He never had a gas mask, never had smoke bombs, didn't deploy smoke. And by the way, we're using smokeless powder in our firearms, right? So yeah. no smoke is coming out of that AR-15. But you can smell gunpowder, rifle powder, who's been burnt, that's been fired indoors. You can smell it. And it makes you think that these things are out there. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about stress memory recall and how difficult it is for forensic investigators to get an accurate story of what happens. And you and I both have investigated a lot of officer-involved shootings, and the officers are giving various statements, and sometimes we have body cameras and dash cams or other outside closed-circuit TVs. It doesn't match with what the officers are saying, and people are very quick to accuse the officers of lying, but we know that, and while, while there could sometimes be that case, it's actually very rare, but what we have is a problem with the stress memory recall. Yeah, this is where you get the tunnel vision. You, let's say you have 10 or 15 people who witnessed the same exact lethal force encounter that lasted 10 seconds. And you talk to these 10 people, you interview all 10 of them, all 10 of them have got a different story of what they saw. And that's because tunnel vision on their part, again, and they see just that one little segment of it. That's right, that and little that, snapshot. Yeah, just a little snapshot. And when you talk to a law enforcement officer who's involved in a shooting, he, at that point, he's the world's worst witness, even though he's the one who's doing the shooting. So right. he's the world's worst witness because he can't remember all of this stuff that happened. And he'll tell you he either did this or he didn't do that when in reality he did. And, and that's not immediately, yeah. and that's with all witnesses, right? And, with and, everybody. And one of the problems is, and especially 
like, you know, with law enforcement, it's a problem for us. It's certainly a problem with the media. Everybody wants to get the story out as fast as they can. But we know as professionals that it's, mo it's, it's not important the speed of the story. What is important is the accuracy of the story. You give the, you give the, the person involved 72 hours, and now you question him. Exactly right. Now you're going to get a real feeling of what really took place. And it's not giving them time to make up a story. It's giving them time to really remember what happened. And, and I want to get into that for a minute. Uh, it, people need to understand that in a high-stress encounter just like that, within 24 hours, the person that you're interviewing only gets it about 25% right. right. So 75% of that is inaccurate. In 48 hours, it's about 50%. And in 72 hours now we're kind of getting up about 90 percent and that's what we want and, and what happens uh, psychologically is a dynamic that's called plausible possibilities now i know that's a it's it's a big college word but really what it means is the analogy is that you've got the video camera which is a forensic mechanism which is never going to change. So it's taking out video. We can stop that thing and we can replay it a hundred times and it's always going to show the same thing a hundred times. We break it down individual frames. It's always going to be the same. It's never going to change. It's objective. It's forensic. However, the human body, hell, that's another story. Okay, so, you know, you and I have just spent the first few minutes talking about vision problems, talking about uh, freezing and panic and tunnel vision and we've talked about um, color problems and time distortion and hearing problems now picture the human body trying to recall this event having experienced many if not all of those things well you take you and i and, the, and other law enforcement officers who have been trained to deal with this kind of stuff to some degree their stories are pretty shaky until about 72 hours later. Exactly. So we take a bunch of kids or civilians who have none of this kind of training, and we expect them to be able to tell us what happened immediately. And that's right. And, and, that's, and that's exactly right. And so that's, and I thought you brought up such a, uh, a good comment when you're talking about, uh, you know, what is their collective knowledge? I mean, you didn't use that term, but what do they know? Hell, they're kids. And so what are they doing? They're watching a lot of television. They're watching a lot of violent videos where there's a lot of shootings and things. And when the brain, you know, you tell the brain to do something. Hey, I want you to remember something. Okay. So you got the investigator sitting with you and say, Hey, I need you to remember something. What, what the, the, the kid tries to do, just like any police officer would try to do, is try to comply and tell you what they remembered. But what they remember right now is so skewed. And, and there are actual, because of the stress, there's gaps in the memory. And what happens is the brain takes the entire collective memory of the individual and tries to fill in those gaps with what they thought was a plausible possibility of what could have occurred. And that's why, well, hell, it was plausible to think there was smoke there. It was plausible to think the kid was wearing a gas mask. It was plausible to think of all these. He had smoke bombs when he didn't have any of those things. Well, that is muzzle blast coming out of a rifle. It, and a lot of noise. A lot of noise. That they're not hearing. It smells gunpowder, <laughs> especially with rifles. Exactly. When it's burning. They smell that cordite. It, it sounds, it smells like 
Well, there's smoke bombs. Well, there's not. But the brain brings it up because, again, that's the most plausible possibility. When we come back, we're going to talk about active shooting training, what can we do, uh, how people should be trained, what are the protocols of active shooting training, because I hate to tell the, the, the audience this, but if history is any good judge, we're going to get a copycat and we'll probably get it pretty soon. There's a lot of sick people out there, and best be prepared. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to ShortyGorhamAFB.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. So, Larry, let's talk about active shooter training. You and I go nationally and uh, train corporate America and schools and churches. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is we don't get calls until there's an active shooter situation when we would like to get calls You're all right. of the time. So let's just kind of talk about uh, active shooters and, you know, what they're all about. And, uh, and then what are the, the very basic protocols of training to prepare for an active shooter and more importantly, to survive an active shooter. Now, let me just tell our audience for a minute, give them a little background, uh, active shooters. And we've been looking at active shootings, uh, since, uh, the Texas, uh, university uh, massacre in Austin, and uh, we had uh, Charles Whitman, a, a former Marine uh, that had uh, been a marksman in the Marine Corps, uh, had long guns, got up into the tower at the University of Texas in Austin, and uh, selectively picked targets, and uh, I believe he killed about uh, 14 people. Oh, yeah, and, uh, and wounded a few, and by the way, that was the impetus for special weapons and tactics uh, being developed. And uh, so now after all these years, and of course we do uh, psychological autopsies and criminal psychological profiles on, on survivor active shooters, uh, they're predominantly male, they're predominantly single, in other words, a single shooter. And uh, here's the things to know about active shooters. Number one, they shoot indiscriminately. They, they shoot anybody. They don't care. They shoot with no mercy at all. Children, men, women, pregnant women, uh, the elderly, the infirmed, people in wheelchairs, they don't care. They are simple targets. The next thing is they don't negotiate with law enforcement. 
Next thing, they don't make any demands and they don't surrender. The only time that they do surrender is by catching them by surprise. They've run out of ammunition. Their weapons have jammed or something like that. And as a matter of fact, 40% of them die by their own hand. They commit suicide or suicide by cop. So, Larry, let's just kind of go into what people should know uh, about training for an active shooter incident. Well, in the first place, an active shooter has got psychological problems. So we can't take anything and, take, and consider it to be logical to do this or not to do something because you're dealing with something that's not logical. So, you know, there's several things you can do to protect the other or prepare for them. And what it really boils down to is harden the target. And a lot of people, when I say, you know, harden the target, a lot of people think I'm talking about a building. No, the building is not the target. It's the individual who is the target. So we have to, we have to do things to harden the target. And even in schools, you can do, the kids can do things as long as they get proper training in what to do and how to do it. You know, but you get no training and they have their nose stuck in a cell phone or an iPod or some device, that's not going to protect them and that's not going to help them. In fact, an active shooter who is searching for somebody to shoot, he hears a cell phone or an iPod making noise, he's going to go right to that noise because there's a target there. And that, that's exactly right. And I know in our training, we tell them to get rid of those cell phones because that's a you know cause of distraction for the active shooter. Don't yeah. don't keep it with you. Turn and, on, let it play, and we'll make it a distraction. Exactly. And I want to remind our audience that there's six basic motivations uh, for the active shooter. Uh, number one uh, is going to be anger and rage. Number two is going to be some sort of psychological disorder, as you've already indicated. Number three would be an anti-government sentiment. Number four would be an anti-religious sentiment. Number five is an act of terrorism. And the newest one, because I just used to have five, the newest one is just pure evil. And I think when we take a look, because we had a survivor here, our active shooter, uh, this last week survived uh, and surrendered without incident, which is extremely rare. Um, we find out that uh, it looks like it's primarily a mental health disorder. Uh, there could have been a lot of bullying and uh, and self uh, and uh, isolation by his peer group, and uh, so there was some pent up rage and anger and a desire for revenge. We got kicked out of school. So let's talk There's about possibility of Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I will uh, just submit to the audience that I think that it was not coincidental that he picked Valentine's Day for his massacre. And let me tell you why. It looks like it's coming out now in the profile of this individual that he had broken up with a girl. A girl actually broke up with him. And then he had gotten into a fight with the new boyfriend of the girl about a year ago and had been kicked out of that school for fighting and disruptive behavior. And, of course, he had a history of disruptive behavior. And I think this, with the school, this was probably the straw that, you know, broke the camel's back. But I think, and I maybe uh, speculation with a little forensic edge to it, I think he came back there on Valentine's Day to uh, for revenge and anger. Yeah, I do too. Now, let's talk about what they can do 
to help us or protect themselves or help protect themselves. You know, we teach you can run, you can hide, and you can fight. Running. Let's just look at running for an instance. Before you run, there's three things you need to know. First thing you need to know is where are you going to run to? And the second thing you need to know before you actually start moving is how are you going to get there? And then the last thing you need to know is what am I going to do when I get there? So this business of telling people where you can just run doesn't help them at all. they got to know the other three things. And that's one of the things that Uncle Sam's Marine Corps taught me early on, that uh, when you run, first place, where are you going to run to? Secondly, how are you going to get there? And what are you going to do when you do get there? And I can tell you my personal case has been uh, two or three times it's actually helped me tremendously in a combat situation. So if it works then, it surely works in this. And, you know, some of the things that can happen uh, with your running plan is that you get obstructed by people that are, like you said, dithering, they're hypervigilant, they're panicked, and uh, they don't want to run. You want to try to save them. Uh, you may be trying to pull on them and things like that, and, and people have to understand you can only take things so far, but you've got to run, and you've got to run now, and you have to run as far away and as fast as you can from where the gunfire is coming from. Larry, let's talk about hiding, okay? If you can't run, you got to hide. But there's, there's, there's a couple of ways to hide. You can, you, can, you can use concealment to hide your body, and concealment is nothing more than a dark room uh, behind a bush. You know, Concealment is, is something that does not stop bullets, but you can't be seen. The cover, on the other hand, is you can't be seen and it stops bullets. There's not a whole lot of those in schools, but concealment works, but you got to know how to do so, and uh, it's it's not as easy as everybody thinks. You know, I can run over and, and stick my head in the corner and close my eyes and I'm hitting. Well, no, you know, you're not. So it takes some training on how to hide, and then you got to always remember that if, if hiding doesn't work and you're going to get discovered while you're hiding. You better have plan B, because plan A just quit. And let's talk a little bit about some of the things that they should do when they are hiding. Now, you mentioned make sure that you get some uh, some cover, yeah. okay, something that will stop a bullet, okay? That's so important, uh, especially these guys that are using these, uh, you know, uh, high-capacity magazines or 223s. Uh, some of them are fully metal jacketed. Uh, they're going to be penetrating through things. So you want to make sure that you can get behind a thing or multiple things that are going to stop that bullet uh, from getting through to you. The next thing is when you hide, you've got to be quiet. Oh, and that means turn that darn cell phone off. As a matter of fact, stick, turn it off, throw it away, stick it in your pocket, because guess what? They illuminate. And if you're in a darkened room and all of a sudden the killer is looking through the door window and sees an illumination against the wall, where do you think he's going to direct his fire towards? Now, you got to get rid of the cell phone. I mean, I wouldn't try to hang on to it for any reason. I'd just leave it turned on and throw that sucker as far as I could. Because if it's going to go off and make noise and lights going to come on, it's going to draw his attention to where you're not. And that's a good thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for, for, for people that are in, that are like educators and people that are in corporate America or just 
anybody that is in an office or a classroom setting that would be a person of responsibility, one of the easiest things that you can do to barricade is just keep a doorstop with you and just put it in your desk. We're talking about a $2 item up against the door. And let me tell you what, you stick that underneath that door and that guy is not getting through that door. Difficult. Okay. And you don't even have to worry about wasting a lot of time, you know, piling desks and chairs up against that door when just a $2 item that takes two seconds to deploy you know, is, is going to work. It's $2 and two seconds, and you're not coming through the door. And the next thing, for God's sake, stay away from the windows, all right, all of the windows, and make sure that when you hide, you are not moving. We talked about being quiet, but we need to also talk about not moving. I know in this particular instance, with this active shooter, according to what the classmates were saying is that when he stuck that gun through that after he blew out that door window and he stuck the rifle barrel through that door window he shot at everything that moved and didn't shoot at people that were in plain view that didn't move because he was attracted by the movement well there's three basic things that draws attention and you would think movement would be the number one but it's not the thing that draws attention first is bright colors. If you see bright something, a bright bright shirt walking down the hallway, or a bright colored car driving down the road, you immediately look at it because it's bright. It's bright in color. That's how come fire trucks are yellow and, and red. Why? They're bright colors. They draw attention. So color is something you may want to kind of consider when you're going to what I think to be hiding about. As the other one is movement, it will draw attention immediately. And then the next one is proximity, and that means the closest one to the shooter is going to get his attention first. So you have to watch about color, you have to watch movement, and of course proximity. And let's talk about the third option, which is fight. Larry, you know fighting. a lot about fighting. Fighting is something that takes some time and effort and training to do. And there's all kinds of ways to fight. You can fight with your hands and feet. And if you know how to do so, you can be very quick and very deadly with these things. But not so much. Well, you can be deadly. But you can also, I like to use the term, if you're going to fight with your hands and feet, if you're blocking blows, you're losing. Don't be blocking. Attack. And when it comes time to fight, you have to attack. And I mean, attack with vengeance. You know, basically, I, I try to teach people and train people. You take fear, you turn fear into anger, and you take that anger and you turn it into revenge. And it's got to be with a 120% commitment. You, you just go, can't do this halfway. you got to go full tilt. You know, if you, I've seen pictures in some of these uh, active shooter trainings where they're using a fire extinguisher like a fire extinguisher, to spray something. Well, it's a better club than it is a fire extinguisher. It's okay to hit them with the fire extinguisher chemical, but for God's sakes, don't forget to smack them yeah, with the fire extinguisher. You can catch him coming around the corner, blindside him with a fire extinguisher, and you hit him hard with that steel object, he's going to stop. So when you're thinking about fighting and you're in that classroom or you're in that meeting room or you're in your office, 
you need to start thinking right now before the incident, what do I have around me that I work in this environment every day that I can use as a weapon of desperation? Students have them in their hands and they don't even know it. Pencils and pens. I mean, you can be extremely deadly with a pencil and a pen if you know how to use it. Of course, it's, it's kind of tough training to teach people how to use them. And it ideas, takes commitment. But it takes commitment, but you can be down and effective. So you don't have to have specialized weapons, basically, really. You can make bigger with what's at hand. You know, a gun is great if you know how to use it, but you may not have one and you may not be allowed to have one. And that's possible, very highly possible. So you have to look at other things, you know. But you just kind of have to think about things in your mind you know, and play these psychological games with yourself, these what ifs, you know. If I'm here and this happens, what can I do? And while you have the time and the luxury to have the time to sit down and think about it and visualize yourself going through this entire drill of how I'm going to get this done, and still survive this thing. And, and you know, Larry, you brought up just a, a very important training concept. And we uh, teach ourselves this in law enforcement. And we practice it every single day. And it's called the what if game. Play the what if game. What if this happened? What if that happened? What would I do? What's my contingency plan? What's What's my third plan? Because plan A very rarely works. You're always into plan B and maybe plan C, but you got to play that what if game. And you know what? That costs you nothing and it's training. It costs you time and that's it. And that's it. You know, you mentioned uh, when we first got into this segment of the conversation about target hardening. I want to talk about mindset because you're absolutely right. We can we can certainly target harden the building, right? We can put gates up. We can put walls up. We can put metal detectors there. We can do a number of things to keep people from getting into our inner perimeter of our campus. But the mindset is so important. And one of the problems I have, and I'm going to admit to my audience that before I was in law enforcement, I was actually uh, a middle school and a high school teacher. And so I know that mentality and I've worked in universities my entire life as a professor, but it is that anti-gun, uh, you know, safe place, uh, you know, soft target mentality that if we are going to move forward and really be serious about protecting our children and get serious about protecting ourselves in our home, in our homes, yeah, homes, offices, churches, and place of employment, we have got to have a more practical and defensive-oriented mindset because it's going to cost people our lives, including our lives, if we don't have that. So would you agree that teachers, faculty, everybody has to just change that mentality? Yes. If these, if these individuals would look at every active shooter within, this unit, within the United States, where did they go? Where did the active shooter go? He went to where there is no guns. That way, he knows he's not going to be faced with anybody that could possibly take him down until he does what he wants to do. So that's the first place they look for, is no guns. Right? Uh, these active, and the same with terrorists. If you look at the terrorist attacks, 
uh, especially like the ones that started in, in 9-11, but they did. There's no guns aboard an airplane, right? And they took these, they took these planes down with box cutters, and nobody fought them. Nobody, except for the one that we had for the, the, uh, the Pentagon. But they were fighting for the real weapon, which was the aircraft and the fuel. Yeah, that's what they, that's what they, that became their weapon, yes. But they got control of those without any real struggle, which should have never happened, you know. But that was, a lot of the, the mentality then was don't fight back. And, you know? and the police were telling people, don't fight back. The school tells people, don't fight back. And, and you know, we're really, unfortunately, uh, we are raising generations of kids that are too complacent, uh, too uh, non-aggressive. I mean, when you need to be aggressive, I don't want to say, you know, we want to breed and we want to raise aggressive kids. We want to raise assertive kids with self-control and common sense instead of someone that's, that's looking for a sucky toy and a blanket. Right. You know, in a safe zone, where do we go from here? And we'll do that when we come back. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. In our last segment, we were talking about the protocols for training and surviving an active shooter event. But Larry, I'd like to take this to a completely different level and in a different direction although it's all interconnected. And let's talk about the question that everybody has on their mind right now, and that is, where do we go from here? Well, that's a good question, Ron. Where do we go? Well, it's going to take a politicians changing their minds and seeing the real world. That's what we're all in. We're not in their bubbles. And uh, it's going to change. The, we've got to change the mindset for everyone, including the politicians and the public. It's all about, really, it's all about mindset. It is. There's there's so much political rhetoric uh, that is just useless. It gets us no solutions at all. It doesn't move us one inch forward. And I think it's exacerbated by by, by the mainstream media. It is. And they like kicking the can down the road. They don't want to really face the problem. So let's kick the can down the road and talk about something else. You know, there is there is nothing Talk more. About the yeah, you know, there, there's nothing more important. I mean, if you're a politician, and obviously you and I aren't, I don't think we ever could be, because uh, we've got a different mindset. But with regards to the the politicians, you took an oath, 
and there is nothing more important in your oath than the safety and security of the United States of America and everybody that's in there. You have got to move past these, po these partisan politics and you have got to join together with some common sense solutions and drop all this dribble and political rhetoric that has done uh, us no good and only seeks one side or the other to get you more power. Well, we're done with that. So we need to be about solutions. Larry, let's just throw some solutions out there, some common sense solutions. Let's start with gun control. Is it gun control or behavior control? It's not. It really has nothing to do with gun control at all. You know, it, it is nothing more than we cannot control the citizens if they're armed. If we disarm them, they become subjects, not citizens. Now we can control them. Well, if you don't think that kind of stuff works for a dictator, you know, just look at Hitler or Mussolini or some of those other guys. It worked for them. And the first but thing they, they did? couldn't do it until they took the guns. And that, that was the first thing they did. Take absolutely. the guns. Absolutely. So when, so when politicians are talking to you about gun control, no, they're not. They're talking to you about, about controlling you so that they can tell you what you're going to do. And you won't be able to do a thing about it. And you know, it's no mistake that the Second Amendment is, in fact, our Second Amendment of all of our amendments in the Bill of Rights and the First yeah. Amendment, freedom of speech and assembly. But the Second Amendment is there because even our founding fathers were concerned about government taking over and subjugating the people. It's but like you know what? England. That being said, there are definitely, and I know you and I are definitely in agreement, that there are people in our country that have no business having guns. Correct. Absolutely. There's, I know some people who they just shouldn't have them. They're not, they're not mentally capable of dealing with it, no matter how old they really are. They're just not mentally capable of dealing with the responsibility of being a gun owner. You have these things. And they can be used for all kinds of purposes, some good, some bad. But just the individuals who own these farms are responsible for them and responsible what happens to them or what happens to the farm. If it gets stolen, did you do everything you could to prevent it from being stolen? Now, I've read many police reports in this part of the country where an uh, individual will call the police department and make a report of somebody who stole my gun out of my car or out of my truck. And the first question that the law enforcement officers asked was, was it locked? Well, no. So they're not taking the responsibility that they should. You know, you're guaranteed by the Second Amendment of our Bill of Rights uh, to be able to possess firearms. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be vetting and restrictions on who gets a firearm and who doesn't get a firearm. And we're talking about a lethal weapon here. We know that. There's been, you know, thousands of demonstrations a year within the United States that it is a lethal weapon. And there needs to be a accountability and a demonstration of responsibility for everyone that has the privilege of owning a firearm. And you know, these politicians, again, with all this rhetoric, please remember that we civilians didn't make any of these laws. It was all these politicians that are bantering back and forth 
about what we should do and what we shouldn't do and obstructing us from moving forward. They're the ones that create the laws. Now, we can get mad at law enforcement and, and you have a right to be uh, angry with law enforcement in this particular occasion because with this act of shooters, there was red flags for years that were raised about this young man. He had had 34 different contacts with law enforcement at, at the state level, I'm sorry, at the local level, and then uh, at least uh, two uh, two contacts were made, people reporting, you know, if you see something, say something, and people said something, and at one, uh, going to the, the same agency, both occasions, uh, the first time they said they weren't able to track them, but there was no excuse for the second time for the FBI just dropping a ball on that. There's no excuse for that, but I'm not going to leave it there because people in Boward County, those law enforcement officers that were making contact with that kid again and again and again, should have been able to be smart enough to have an impact strategy to deal with that guy, just like other mental health people. That being said, Larry, I'm sure you're in agreement with me that anybody that has a mental health history has no business owning a firearm. Oh, absolutely. No. But here's the problem with that is some politicians have created such laws that just because you suspect somebody of having a mental health, there's no sign that you can do and put them or have them committed or anything else. So when it comes down to dealing with these kind of people, even though the police have made contact several times, their hands are tied. It boils down to the fact that if there's no crime committed, law enforcement cannot step in. You have to wait for the crime. And, and you know, we're seeing in 80% of my caseload as a forensic expert and a person that deals with death investigations is mental health. Can you imagine that? 80%. And we didn't start seeing this tremendous rise in mental health issues until the end of the 60s. And if you remember nationally, and at the time, I was actually in the state of California. I was involved uh, in law enforcement much later on than, than the 60s. I'm not that old. Uh, but I can remember as a high school kid and as a college kid at the time that we had stopped funding mental health treatment facilities and we had gotten rid of our municipal and a lot of our state mental health uh, treatment facilities and hospitals because uh, groups like the ACLU and uh, liberal attorneys and political action groups that were uh, that were funding attorneys uh, were fighting us tooth and nail. They didn't want to stigmatize uh, people with mental health problems. And so what did we do? We started releasing these people out on the street and look at what we have done now. It's almost like you can't get the genie back in the bottle. They don't do any. They won't do anything with them. They just overlook it, you know. And uh, you can't overlook this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember the days in law enforcement where, if we'd have had that kind of contact with just an individual like this, it wouldn't have taken as many as that they they've already had. But, but you get enough contacts, and it doesn't take a lot, but you get some. Well, they're going. The law enforcement can step in and say, let's look at this a whole lot carefully, and at the time, we could actually... Involuntarily commit them. Yeah, we could involuntarily commit somebody for 72 hours and have them... Uh, evaluated. Evaluated by, by psychiatrists. And not just one, but two or three of them. And, you know, we have these... And I wrote about this. And, you know, I'd, I'd like you to go on to America Out Loud 
and, and go to columnists and, and find my name, Dr. Ron Martinelli, there. And please read my newest article entitled Active Shooters, Gun Control, and Mental Health. And I've got some very interesting statistics there that I won't bore you with right now. Uh, but I will absolutely tell you that there has been such an obstruction of mental health uh, treatment in the United States. And that just needs, we need to just stop this foolishness and we need to re-legislate uh, mental health treatment facilities, both municipal and on a statewide basis, so that we can get these people with serious mental health problems off the street and getting them the treatment that they need. Well, we're thinking the lawmakers who made all these laws years ago, we're now seeing the end result and paying for it, and it's not a good way to go. Larry, it looks like we're pretty much out of time today. I want to thank you so much uh, for being uh, with me on a thread of evidence. Uh, Larry Nichols, uh, internationally famous uh, firearms expert, uh, police tactical instructor for many years, Marine gunnery sergeant. Notice I didn't say former Marine, Semper Fi. <laughs> and uh, we've just, it's just been a pleasure having you today. Thank you very much. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli on America Out Loud and Red of Evidence.